Have you ever seen on TV or even on the radio, heard on the radio, man on the street interviews? The comedian Jay Leno used to have a segment when I was in college called Jaywalking. The hilarious segment would reveal how ignorant people were on various topics such as citizenship, science, or geography. Once he asked some people some questions about the Bible. One of the questions was, can you name one of the Ten Commandments? And the reply was, freedom of speech. (laughs) Another question was, can you complete this sentence? Let him who is without sin... And the response was, have a good time. We may, on the surface, chuckle at these hilarious statements, but it does reveal a most basic lack of knowledge regarding the scriptures. And this ignorance is not just something that you might find on the streets, but it has crept into our pews and sometimes and very often within the pulpits. I have listened to many man-on-the-street interviews that have been conducted at Christian colleges and even at pastor conventions, and the responses really just want to make you cry because, as Hosea says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. One of my favorite quotes is by President Ronald Reagan, which says, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, handed on toward them to do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in the United States where men were free. Similarly, saving faith is not passed down through the bloodstream of our parents to us and from us to our children even if we weekly attend a covenant community of believers. The objective content of our faith must be intentionally passed on, handed off to others, to individuals, families, and churches. We must earnestly contend for the faith that once was handed over to us, delivered by the saints, and proclaimed by the apostles. We must earnestly share it with our children around the dinner table, We must share with with each other at church, at Sunday school, at youth group, from the pulpit, and from the Lord's table. And of course, beyond our circle right here, with anyone who's willing to listen to us on this road called life. Salvation does not pass down through the bloodstream. Rather, it is freely bestowed upon us from above by all those who believe through the powerful proclamation that Jesus alone saves us through his sacrificial blood. Like the man on the street interviews, we need to start asking ourselves and others good questions. Why? Because good questions are like spiritual thermometers that can indicate our spiritual health. Outward appearances can be extremely deceptive and do not always indicate what's going on the inside. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead bones and everything unclean. Trust me, my friends. Satan would be absolutely thrilled if we had communities filled with megachurches, 
filled with people excited towards God and doing good things, with flourishing communities, dry of crime, and white picket fences, if we were only absolutely dead towards God. So I'm going to ask you to lift up your tongues as I take your spiritual temperature. I want you to simply meditate upon it this week. And I'm going to ask you five simple questions. Briefly meditate upon it and then ask or answer as succinctly as you can, maybe in a sentence or two. Think about this week. What is the Bible? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What is a Christian? And how are you saved? The answers to those questions are very important. In our text today, in many ways, these five questions are asked. The scene opens up with two despondent disciples walking along a dusty road towards Emmaus. My best guess is that this is Easter day, perhaps around 3.30, maybe 4 o'clock. And it's about a seven mile journey towards Emmaus which lies at the very bottom edge of a river valley. There, these despondent disciples are downcast because they had all their hopes dashed. It seemed as if it was gone forever. But the root cause of their despair was a lack of knowledge concerning the central message of the Scriptures. They only clasped upon those parts of Scriptures which painted their best hope or their best life now. They were longing for a Messiah that would usher in the glory of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem forever, removing the powerful influence of Rome and bringing paradise on earth. They pinned all their hopes on a particular person, upon Jesus. But the religious leaders handed Jesus over to Rome, and Rome had pinned their hope to a cross. As far as they were concerned, their hope was dead and their hope was gone. As they walked together, processing their despair together, the resurrected Jesus catches up to them as a concealed stranger. For some divine reason, they are kept from recognizing him. The concealed Jesus conducts a man-on-the-street interview with them on that road. He doesn't ask the five questions that I've asked you, but instead he asks a simple question. What are you talking about? What are you discussing together as you walk along? The question literally stops these two men in their tracks, and good questions can do that. Sometimes good questions can produce an out-of-body experience in which the body simply freezes, but the mind gets transported Back to a discussion, an event, or an event. While Cleopas' body freezes and he stands still, perhaps a mile or so down from hill from Jerusalem, his mind gets transported right back up the hill through space and time, back up to Jerusalem to the events of the past week. What stirred into the mind of Cleopas at that question? Perhaps... We can reconstruct some of Cleopas' experience and that other disciple's experience that past week. While there is no testimony in the scriptures that Cleopas or the other disciples saw the crucifixion of Jesus or that they participated with Jesus during the Passion Week, nonetheless, they were well aware of all the events that had happened. Please notice that our text today says that 
that very day, two of them were going to the village, to a, going to a village named Emmaus. When it says two of them, it indicates that these two were part of a larger group that is earlier in the text. So if you roll back to the first few verses of Luke 24, we see that Cleopas and the other disciple were part of a larger group of disciples who were in Jerusalem during the Passion Week. The men were gathered together after the crucifixion when all of a sudden the women disciples busted in amongst them and testified to them that Jesus had rose from the dead. They said that they were confronted by two angels that had announced that Jesus rose from the dead just as he had promised them. However, like typical men, they hear the women, but they are slow to believe. Verse 11 says that they brushed it off like as if it were idle tales, and they didn't believe their testimony. Luke 24 lists three women by name. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. And that, that, that they had testified that Jesus had rose from the dead. But notice that in the text there in Luke 24, it says that other women were also with them. Who were these other women who testified to them? We cannot say with certainty, but consider this. In the Gospel of John, we are told that there are three Marys that were at the very foot of the cross of Jesus when he was crucified. Mary, Jesus' mother. Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the wife of Clopas. The church tradition takes Clopas and Cleopas to be the same person. So Cleopas may or may not have seen with his very own eyes the crucifixion of Jesus. Yet Cleopas likely heard first-hand accounts from his own wife, Mary, who stood at the very foot of the cross. There would have been no reason for him to doubt her testimony concerning the crucified Christ. And he certainly had no doubt as he gathered together with other disciples and discussed it together. For Cleopas, the crucifixion of Jesus was easy to believe. It was widely witnessed. It was a fact that was easy to believe because only the most ignorant uh, uh, visitors of Jerusalem would not have known about the event. It was all the buzz. In fact, it's not only recorded in the Bible, but it's recorded in the Jewish Talmud and Josephus' histories. What Cleopas had a hard time believing was the testimony of the women and the others that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. One has to wonder if Cleopas' own wife was one of the other women who testified to the larger group there that Jesus had rose from the dead. If so, no wonder why Cleopas might have been walking alone home with another disciple. As the despondent Cleopas stood still at Jesus' question, echoes of the events of the past week certainly echoed and stirred his head. Bouncing around in his mind were two irreconcilable facts. Fact one, the Messiah will come in glory. And fact two, Jesus was pinned to the cross by Rome. In his heart and in his mind, these two facts were irreconcilable. They were in conflict. Perhaps this is why Cleopas was unable to see the resurrected Jesus standing right in front of him. 
The cross made the resurrection seem like foolishness to him. Consider this. Later on, the Apostle Paul would write, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Let us move back to our text. Look at verse 18. Cleopas asked the veiled Christ, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? The coy Jesus asked, What things? Cleopas answers, About Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Please notice that Cleopas dialed back his hope in Jesus from Messiah just to another powerful prophet in word and deed before God and men. To believe in anything more seemed like idle tales and foolishness to him. Even today, man on the street interviews reveal that many, or if not most people, have a dialed back view of Jesus. Jesus is so widely attested in Scripture and elsewhere that only the most ignorant brush off Jesus as a legend, as not a real person. Therefore, Cleopas, like most people, believed that Jesus was pinned to a cross and crucified to death. Almost no one challenges that fact today. Nonetheless, man on the fact, a man on the street interviews show that people repeatedly voice a dialed back view of Jesus. If you ask them, who is Jesus, they may reply, maybe like a Muslim, they might say, he was a prophet. Or like most Americans, they may say Jesus was a moral teacher, a social justice warrior, or a fraud, or a lunatic. But they get tripped up by the cross, and they fail to believe in the resurrection. For Cleopas... It was a struggle to believe that someone crucified could be the promised one sung in the coronation hymn of Psalm 2. Or the promised line of Judah who would bear Shiloh's scepter. Or the son of David who was to sit upon the throne forever. How could the crucified Jesus be the same Christ of Psalm 72? How could Jesus be the divine Son of Man in Daniel 7? Can we truly believe that Israel is redeemed? Isn't Israel still under the thumb of Rome? Aren't things just like they always have been? Cleopas could not see Jesus as the Messiah because the cross was getting in his way. His Greek mind said it was foolishness, And his Jewish mind did not accept the testimony of the miraculous resurrection. At this point in our text, we move from despondent disciples to a denouncement of doubt. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe. They weren't only slow to believe the testimony of others, like the women who they thought were just giving them idle tells, but they were also slow to believe Jesus, whom they just called a prophet. 
The cross should have been no surprise to Cleopas and the other disciple. Multiple times during the ministry of Christ, Jesus promised that he would be killed and rise again upon the third day. He spoke of it in veiled ways, and he spoke of it plainly. Perhaps Cleopas and the other disciples heard Jesus several times predict his own death and resurrection. And perhaps they even entertained the thought. And that's why they remained in Jerusalem those three days after Christ was crucified. But as far as they were concerned, the countdown timer had clocked out. And since they themselves did not see Jesus with their own eyes, they rejected the testimony of others. This is why their hearts were downcast. This is why they packed their bags and headed home towards Emmaus. But notice that the veiled Jesus doesn't call them foolish for failing to believe his promises while he walked amongst them during his ministry. Nor does he denounce their doubt because they doubted the testimony of others, possibly even Cleopas doubting his own wife's testimony. Rather, he denounces them because they are foolish and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Alarm bells should be ringing in our own ears as we sit here today. Jesus wants us to see him as he is by properly reading and expounding the Old Testament scriptures. At the very heart of the Old Testament scriptures is Jesus. He is the central character. He is the box top figure of the Old Testament puzzle. We may see promises of the Messiah in the Old Testament, but then take a scissors to the Word of God and say, I like this image of the Messiah, but I do not like that image of the Messiah. However, we must accept all the testimony that is revealed by God concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. God is so gracious. He has painted for us from Genesis on the redemptive history of God concerning the coming of the kingdom and the promised anointed king. We can hold a very high view of scriptures and still absolutely miss the point of the Bible. For example, one of the best-selling Old Testament commentaries today is published by a Jewish scholar and a radio talk show host named Dennis Prager. His commentary series is called The Rational Bible. He holds the Old Testament Torah a very high reverence, and he has some insightful wisdom. But there is a foolishness to it, because he fails to see Christ in the pages of the Old Testament. Jesus said in John 5, 39, to the Jewish leaders that were persecuting him, he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you've refused to come to me to have life. Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians 3, that when the Old Testament covenant scriptures are read, or when Moses is read, that a veil covers their hearts so that they do not believe. You can have a Bible bull wizard mind, knowing and memorizing all the books of the Bible, having dates and facts. 
You can have someone who knows the Mosaic law inside and out, and yet if they do not see Christ in the pages, there is a deep foolishness about it. On that three-hour walk to Emmaus, the veil Jesus set before Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, the scriptures, and how at the heart of it, it's about him, about Jesus. In particular, he had to show them that he had to first suffer before he could enter into his glory. I know that a 30-minute sermon might seem like a long message, but could you imagine a three-hour sermon? But to be taught by the Master on a three-hour walk would must, must have been absolutely gripping. I'm sure that the miles just simply flew by. We are not told here in this text what Jesus told them, but he, perhaps he laid before them things like this. God promised Adam and Eve a deliverer. He would crush the head of the serpent, but would not the serpent strike his heel? And then God soon after revealed the means of covering their shame by sacrificing an animal and clothing them with his skin? Didn't God call Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, a son of promise? And he did so in confidence that God would raise Isaac again from the dead. But when God stayed Abraham's hand from drawing that knife, God provided a substitute sacrifice, a ram whose head was caught in a thorny thicket. Didn't Moses instruct the people to take a male lamb and sacrifice him on the Passover, so that the angel of death might pass by when the blood was poured upon that door? Wasn't this the cause of their exodus? Wasn't the tabernacle to be furnished and crafted according to the strict instructions of God, so that it might reflect the glory of heaven, so that the Shekinah glory of God would be with His people? And yet the high priest could not simply walk his way right into the Holy of Holies, but he first had to make a sacrifice. Is this not a shadow of what must take place by the Messiah as our anointed high priest in order to take us, his people, once and for all, into the presence of God. How about when the people complained against God, and God sent fiery serpent snakes and bit the people, and many were dying on the way? Didn't God instruct Moses to make a bronze serpent on a pole and lift it up, and with a promise that all who looked upon it would be saved? Didn't Jesus say, the Son of Man will similarly be lifted up and draw all men to himself? When David spoke in the Psalms of the one forsaken by God and surrounded and mocked by men and his garments divided, was this not what happened to Jesus at the cross? And did he not even cite this own psalm while pinned there? Didn't God promise in Psalm 16 that he would not abandon his faithful one to the realm of the dead nor to see decay? Didn't God speak in Isaiah? of a servant that will glorify God, also describe him as an innocent, suffering servant that would willingly take on our pain, a servant that did not open his mouth on the way to the slaughter, a servant who was punished and crushed by God, a servant who bears the iniquities of his people and is an offering for sin. Doesn't this suffering servant pour out his life unto death and get buried in a rich man's tomb? 
Doesn't this suffering servant rise from the dead because the text says he will once again see the light of life? And doesn't God, because of all this, exalt with glory this servant? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke included this road to Emmaus. The question we need to ask is why? God obviously thinks it's very important. Jesus not only wants his disciples to know, he also wants us to know that in order for us to understand who he is and to know what he's doing and what he's going to do, we need to learn to see him in the Old Testament in every single page. Scripture is useful for everything for faith and life, but too many times... Christians use the scripture like a useful tool to help them find their best life now. Notice that Jesus doesn't turn to Cleopas and say, Hey, I see that you're headed home without your wife today. You've got some troubles going on. Let me give you seven steps to a better marriage as found in the book of Ruth. Nor does he say to the other disciples, If you want to conquer the giants in your life, then be more like David. Nor does he teach them seven steps to leadership from Joshua. No. No, 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 no. He doesn't do that. Jesus kept the conversation focused on the focus of Scripture upon himself. Countless youth groups today are improperly teaching our children, teaching our children to be moral therapeutic deists, turning their focus away from Christ and turning it upon themselves. So are preachers. Are you a preacher? Are you an elder? Are you a Sunday school teacher? Are you simply just a mom and dad trying to teach your children the Bible? Are you trying to witness to others in this community or to a friend? Are you trying to even learn the scriptures for yourself and understand it? Then please... Focus upon Christ. Jesus is telling us to earnestly seek Him out in all of the Scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, has a great quote. While he was teaching a prospective preacher, he said, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England... Wherever it may be, there is a road to London. So from every text of Scripture, there is a road to Christ. And my dear brother, your business is, when you get to a text, to say, Now, what is the road to Christ? I've never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I do find one, I will go go over every hedge and ditch, but I will get to my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless a savor of Christ is in it. There is only one way to God, and that is through Christ. But in the scriptures, there are many paths that you can find to Christ. So, I deeply appreciate how Spurgeon faithfully preached Christ when he preached. However, as one of my professors of preaching, Sidney Gradonis, once jokingly said that sometimes 
Spurgeon had the habit of going over every hedge and ditch in order to get to his master. So, so for example, we should be careful not to use medieval allegorizing that forces strange interpretations in order just to land at the cross of Christ. For example, the door in the side of Noah's ark does not refer to the wound in the, the side of Christ. Now, in order to properly equip you to see Christ in the Old Testament, I've provided some handouts in the back that uh, might help you out. There are advice sheets uh, that you can look at and possibly help you find your way from the text to Christ. If you have some trouble while looking at the scriptures, finding your way to Christ, be sure to help uh, to ask others for help. Consider this. The Ethiopian eunuch who was reading from the scroll of Isaiah said, How can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? And then Philip sits next to him, and then he shows him Christ from the text. So, take one of these, please. And then if you have questions, ask your pastor. Ask your elders. Jesus taught his disciples to keep their focus upon Jesus as he sent them out to teach and to preach. He relentlessly taught uh, them from the Old Testament. Uh, told them to preach from the Old Testament, preaching the incarnate Christ and the resurrected Lord. One of the oldest confessions of the church, and Paul repeats it, is in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, the thing uh, that, uh, that he preached that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance of the scriptures. You know, they believe that this Confession actually was formulated maybe even two or three years after the resurrection of Jesus. You know, so how like sometimes we say things on the board. It was a common confession of the church. Any sound analysis of the Old Testament would uh, would show that the Old Testament was indispensable for the apostles. Simply consider how much of the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Therefore, we get it fundamentally wrong if we separate the scriptures into historical redemptive epics, epics as if it has no common unity amongst it. Jesus forbids us to shelve the Old Testament. Repeatedly, Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law of Moses, the prophets, or the Psalms. Rather, he came to fulfill them. You know, every day of Christ's ministry, he was fulfilling the shadows and the promises and all the hopes bound up in that Old Testament. For example, if you roll back earlier into Luke, to Luke 4, Jesus enters the synagogue in Nazareth. Providentially, the reading of that day was from Isaiah 61. They had like, sort of like set texts. Jesus was handed the scroll uh, by the person who was in charge of it, and he was invited to expound upon it. And Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the leer of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant. And instead of expounding upon the scripture, Jesus simply sits down. It would be like my coming here today to preach the text is read and then... I just simply sit down with you. All the crowd is looking upon Jesus. Their eyes were fixed upon him. 
And then after a little suspense, Jesus simply says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's like a drop the mic moment. Shortest sermon ever, right? No, you're probably saying, Pastor Mark, please, preach like Jesus. Get to the point already, right? The point is this. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the point of the scriptures. And all of us are doing the church and the world at large a huge disfavor by treating the scripture in a way that does not point to Christ. Make sure that your preacher and your teachers authentically integrate the message of the text and what they teach. But make sure that it always climaxes upon the person, the works, and the teachings of Christ. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said to him, Upon this solid rock statement, I will build my church. So be careful to not build this church upon seven steps to a better whatever. So as we look back at our text, we see that Jesus not only discloses himself through the proper preaching and teaching of the Old Testament, but he also does through the breaking of bread. I love how the text says that as they approached the village of Emmaus, that Jesus was going to continue on. His proper exposition of the scriptures made them hungry to hear more. And so they urged him to stay with them. At this point, the sun is going down. As generous hosts, they open up their home so that he does not have to walk the trail in the dark. And as a generous host, they set a table before him. But Jesus flips the script in the text. He takes the bread. He gives thanks to God. He breaks it. And he gives it to them. There's a part of me that wants to believe that as Jesus picks up the bread, he says, Father, thank you for giving us our daily bread that hunger might be satisfied. And as he breaks it, he continues his prayer. Remember the suffering servant spoken of by Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And as he extends that bread out to them, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And as he opens his hands, his nail-pierced hands to them, he says, and by his wounds we are healed. Cleopas and the other disciples' eyes are fully opened at that moment. And they recognize Jesus as their resurrected Lord. And all of a sudden, Jesus disappears from their sight. So my friends, we come to see Christ through two very powerful ways. First, through the proper preaching of the word from the scriptures. And two, through the proper administration of the sacraments. As soon as Jesus disappears, these disciples ask a declarative question. Were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Notice how they did not speak about the sacraments, but rather they spoke about how Jesus opened up the scriptures. The sacraments without the words are absolutely meaningless. 
According to the Belgic Confession, Article 33, Christ is mindful of our crudeness and our weakness. Therefore, He has ordained sacraments for us to seal His promises in us. God has added to the word of the gospel, baptism and the Lord's Supper, to better represent to our external senses what God enables us to understand by the word. And by it, God confirms in us the salvation that He imparts to us. Next week, you are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper here. First, listen to the promises of Christ as the text is proclaimed to you. Then, open your hands and receive Christ by food and drink. Through Jesus is revealing Himself so that you might see Him through the eyes of faith. May the words and the sacraments warm your souls. As that bread and that wine is placed in your hands next week, there's going to be a very pious temptation by you to crawl inside of yourself, to make yourself try to feel warmed up, to see if you can crawl yourself up to God. None of you should take the temperature of your faith based on how well you feel, or maybe how well the pastor preaches. Rather, cling. Cling by faith to the promises of God proclaimed to you concerning the objective life and the works of Christ. Simply come and receive. Let God rain on upon you from above as He gives Himself to you. Through the proclamation of the word and the sacraments. That is the way it works. God uses the proclaimed words as a means of grace to open our eyes to Jesus. And he confirms and he glues that message to us. And he seals those promises to us through baptism. And that's Lord's Supper, that covenantal meal. When Cleopas and the other disciples' eyes were opened... They could not keep that news to themselves. Sure, they had just walked downhill seven miles. Sure, they were tired. Sure, it was dark outside. Sure, they were hungry. But they had just encountered the resurrected Christ and they could not keep that message to themselves. At once, they got up and they returned back to Jerusalem. Seven miles up inside the dark, right? And they had to find the leaven that very night. And they had to declare, It is true. The Lord is risen. You and I have not seen Jesus with our own eyes. But our faith is reasonable. It's founded upon the eyewitnesses and the testimony of the disciples. God uses the Holy Scriptures old and new. To open our hearts and our minds to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, resting upon the testimonial foundation of the apostles. God continues to open up our eyes in conjunction with the Word through the use of the sacraments, assuring to our hearts and communicating to us His benefits each time we partake of the Lord's Supper at Communion. Come to worship next week. Be served by Christ. He will be giving himself to you through your pastor, through Pastor Boonstra, as he preaches, 
and as that meal is served. May your hearts be so warm that you are moved to go from this place and share with others, proclaiming, Indeed it is true, the Lord is risen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the text that you have given. It seems like a very simple thing that you think that they would recognize Jesus, but believe that you kept them from recognizing him because you not only had something to teach them, but it's something to teach us. And we need to see your son as you have painted him so wonderfully through the scriptures. And that through reading of the Old and the New Testament that we begin to understand Christ more fully. Let us not lose focus upon the trivial matters here and there. But rather, let us continue always to find our way back to Christ so that we might cling to Him, His promises, and all of His benefits. Warm our hearts. Be with this congregation. I know that you're going to speak to them next week through Pastor Boonstra and through the giving of the sacraments. May you simply place yourself before them and may them simply may they simply receive. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.